2: This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santopadre. Our guest this week is a musician, music historian, producer, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, a versatile and admired director of both documentaries and narrative features, and God help him, a fan of my comedy, and this very podcast. God help him. He's the director of the terrific music documentary Louie Bluey, as well as the widely praised 1995 documentary Crumb about the life and art of his longtime friend Robert Crumb, which won over audiences and critics alike taking home the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance, as well as awards from the National Board of Review and the National Society of Film Critics. And in 2008, Entertainment Weekly named Crumb one of the best films of the last 25 years. He also co-wrote and directed the Oscar-nominated and much-loved Ghost World, a movie celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, as well as the 2006 comedy Art School Confidential. And with Christmas just around the corner, we would be remiss if we failed to include a favorite holiday film of the podcast, the boldly original Bad Santa, which the late film critic Roger Ebert called a demented, twisted, unreasonably funny work of kamikaze style. A lifelong fan of actors and character actors, he's worked with some of the great ones, including Angelica Houston, John Malkovich, Cloris Leachman, Jim Broadbent, Scarlett Johansson, and my old Problem Child co-star, John Ritter. And three people who've appeared on this show, Steve Buscemi, Ileana Douglas, and Bob Balaban. Frank and I are pleased to welcome a gifted filmmaker, the former cello and mandolin player in our and his cheap suit serenaders, and a man who claims that in his youth, he developed an unusual sexual attraction to the wicked witch of the west margaret hamilton the multi-talented <laughs> terry swigoff
3: jeez it's quite an introduction there gilbert
2: I yeah, didn't know it was
3: about me, I might be impressed.
2: Yeah, it, it doubles as an obituary. <laughs> right.
0: You just think,
2: have to found dead in his Los Angeles
0: apartment. San Francisco in this case. <laughs> my,
3: <laughs> my, I guess my career is officially over by appearing on your podcast these days.
2: So, so we met?
3: Yes, we, we met a long time ago. Like 10 years ago, I, I we went... Me and my wife came to uh, see you at um horrible venue in San Francisco called uh, Cobb's Comedy Club in North Beach.
2: Oh, yes, yes.
3: And uh, I thought you were the, the first five minutes you did were like some weird thing where you were sort of deconstructing stand-up comedy. I'd never heard you do it before anybody else. And it was incredible. And I was just laughing so hard I was crying. And, of course, the rest of the audience, these drunken frat boys and their their hookers are just bored (laughs) to tears. And I think you, at about five minutes in, you just abruptly switched to just telling dirty old jokes (laughs) and just, you know, ran out the clock. And then I came up afterwards to ask you to sign my book, Rubber Balls and Liquor, which I love, by the way, that you're a (laughs) gifted writer. And uh, you, you signed it and I tried to make a little bit of conversation with you. Uh, because I was actually interested in doing a documentary about you. Really? You seemed so uncomfortable talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you had your eyes sort of mostly closed, and you had the frozen smile on your face. And, you know, I'm enough of a socially awkward person myself to know, like, okay, leave the guy alone. And my wife actually took me inside and said, no, no, leave him alone because he's... This is after his big job, and this is where he meets groupies. The girls all come up to you. Oh, oh yes. yes. I get
2: so much pussy at
3: my shows. <laughs> yeah, but, but Gilbert, women always say they love a guy with a good sense of humor. They're full of shit. <laughs> so the first thing they always say, what's the most attractive uh, thing always. about a guy? Oh, if he's funny, if he makes me laugh.
0: Yeah, oh, we've, we've we've talked about what bullshit that is on this show many a time. Well, no,
3: I, I just have to say, before we start, Gilbert, you've made me laugh more than any single person on the planet. And I thank you for that. I needed the laughs, believe me. It's all that's kept me alive at this point. I'm 73 now.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you.
3: You're more than welcome. And what a compliment. I, I turned down a big, not a big film job, but a lucrative film job. Because they said we need you to start right around December first, and I'm thinking, I got the Gilbert podcast. I can't do that. I'm not missing that <laughs> for anything. So I, I couldn't tell them that. Of course, I mean, I said and, yeah.
2: and you wound up seeing my other doc. They eventually did do a documentary. I loved on it. it.
3: I thought the guy yeah. did a great job. Neil Berkeley, shout yeah. him out. Yeah. yeah, it's called Gilbert.
0: Yeah, no, I loved it. Thank I you. told I Terrific, told Terry yeah. that uh, I think Gilbert and Crum would be a wonderful if people did double bills anymore. I was going to suggest it
2: myself.
3: <laughs> Similar
0: subject matter.
3: <laughs> I saw you once, Gilbert, on a YouTube video. You were on some guy's show. I don't know if it was a podcast or what, some interview on a radio or something. And you were sitting in this position with your arm in a certain twisted way that I've only seen people in my really inner circle of twisted record collectors Position themselves in. It was just so odd, just so weird. <laughs> like you're, you're like an honorary member of the Crumb family or something. <laughs> he
0: could be. He's Gilbert Crumb, the fourth brother. Gilbert, you you used to do yoga. Well, you were double jointed back in the day. You used yeah, to do sit in the I lotus used to position. Be, uh, you very do?
2: flexible. Yeah. I mean, I never actually did out and out. There was one yoga position I could do where I twist my arms and, you know, get in a lotus position, cross my arms and grab my feet. It was now. now I would kill myself doing that.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I, I have to give you guys one more plug because I love this podcast so much. And I think it's seriously in all seriousness. It is really an important depository of cultural and historical showbiz lore that I think the National Endowment for the Arts should be giving you guys grants for it. It's, it's just incredible. And I, and I thank you for doing it. I know you're probably, well, you, maybe you're making a ton of money. You guys have any sponsors? or A ton
0: of money. Uh,
2: yeah. Yes, yes. General <laughs> Motors just called today.
0: <laughs> 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 Gil, Gilbert is sleeping on a bed made of of uh, $1,000 bills. Yeah. <laughs> pouring I, de- in. Deserves it
1: from
3: that.
0: No, Terry,
1: that's Myself, nice to I, say.
3: Myself, I... If, I didn't sleep so well last night. I, I was so tired. I thought, "Geez, how am I going to get through this podcast?" But, you know, I have a pretty low bar. Any morning I wake up and I'm not just laying in a pool of my own urine, I put in the plus column these <laughs> days. <laughs> well, we we, I'm, we appreciate I'm still the ambulatory. kind of words. That's about all I can say about myself.
0: Well, you're too you're too modest. We appreciate the compliment. We'll look into the NEA. Yeah. Now, now tell us about
2: Glorious Leachman
0: naked. <laughs> there you go. Like I told, like I warned you, Terry. <laughs> no, no rhyme or reason. It's just going to jump around. That's fine. Uh, well,
3: Chloris was like a really sort of randy woman. <laughs> I <laughs> came to learn. You know, I the, the one thing I'm very disappointed in myself about working with Chloris was the fact that the entire time I spent with her, I forgot to ask her about "Kiss Me Deadly." Oh, do wow, I just right. I blanked out on it. You know, she's That's in the right. very beginning of that film, Running Down the Road, one of my favorite films. That's and, Robert know,
0: Aldrich, right?
3: Yes. And I, yeah. you know, who knows what story she had from that. But, you know, the kind of stories on the set that I personally experienced were when we she was playing the grandmother in Bad Santa, right? The little kid's grandmother, mm-hmm. Thurman Merman. And, you know— she, She was a little bit cranky at first because she didn't have many lines she had like one sort of repetitive line, but it was sort of got funny after a while. Can I fix you some sandwiches? Right. A few other lines. But she wanted more. And I I said, Chloris, it is what it is. You got to make it what it is. I think in an attempt to try to flesh out the role, no pun intended, she (laughs) asked me before the camera rolled. She said, let me just unbutton my robe here. And she unbuttoned and she's naked under the robe. And I said, you want us to film you naked under the robe? What are you thinking? She said, well, you know, from reading the script, that grandmother's got dementia. And I knew this. I, I forget <laughs> if she said it was like her grandmother, but somebody she knew, an aunt or somebody, would run around the house with her robe open. And of course, all I'm thinking of is the Rodney Dangerfield stories. But I said, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't I think that might be distracting. And then she wanted to just do it with her underwear on. But. We settled to keep the just the robe on, but
2: it, she's it's always
3: fun. flirting with the Teamsters and the people that picked her up. She's very
0: randy. And she must have been in her 70s at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's
2: funny because I was doing some movie or TV show. I was sitting in the makeup trailer and the makeup uh, woman said to me that she worked on Cloris Leachman recently. And Cloris Leachman would sit in the makeup chair, totally naked. Huh. You know, oh, just making conversation. Yeah.
3: Yeah, she was very weird that way. I, I don't know. Maybe that's how she got cast in that role in uh,
0: the Bogdanovich film. Did you get to ask her about the famous Twilight Zone episode with uh, Billy Moomy being wish- wishing people into the cornfield? No. I She no. was the mom. It's just... Could, if I could go back in time, right? Legendary career. Yeah. Let me let me also because we're talking about uh, uh, Terry's Wygoff and Gilbert Gottfried crossover. By the way, Gilbert uh, Terry told me that he he regrets not ever being able to offer you a role. I've yes. tried. See, I, a I, He had times. you in mind for a few things.
2: Yeah. I'm at the list of people who who I'm their favorite comic who've never had me in their movies, is a who's who of
0: Hollywood. I I
2: don't know how many times people have said to me, oh, my God, uh, Martin Scorsese is in love with you. He thinks, and I thought, I can't even get a ticket to one of his movies.
0: (laughs) How could I get a discount? (laughs) Well, now Terry's in that exclusive company. Well, you're hard to cast,
3: you know, in all fairness. You are sort of a particular... You have this very idiosyncratic persona that doesn't fit with everything. But still, I've come across a few things. And anytime I've mentioned to a studio, they just, you know, oh, no, no, he's not big enough star. He's, he's, a, he's a comedian, you know. So, but, you know, you're not alone in that department. I always David, keep you in mind. I actually have something now, if it gets going, that it, that it would work. I'll offer it to you. You may not want it, but... Ooh.
0: Well, the, uh, David, the David Cross role in, in, uh, in Ghost World, you told me. you Yeah, thought that, that, uh, he would have been good in that. Pat Oswald yeah. auditioned for that, too.
2: And would any of the movies that you made be in theaters nowadays?
0: You mean in a repertory theater? No, he means, he means your well, small. In a movie? The, the oh, I see. Small would, films would, like Ghost World. Would Ghost World. Well, would it wouldn't get made
3: these days, let alone be in a theater. They'd never give you the money to make it. They barely gave me the money back then. (laughs) It's a miracle (laughs) that I got the money to make that film.
0: Interesting.
3: They had Uh, a test screening of that film, Ghost World. I remember the producer, my friend Leanne Helfen, um, said, you have to go to this test screening. I said, I don't want to go. The last thing I want to do. She said, no, no, just go. They won't know who you are. You sit in the middle of the audience. And just sort of get the feel of the room. I said, I'm not going to get the feel of anything. They're not going to, you know, except like where they laugh or they don't laugh. And I don't care. I like the movie. I don't care what they think. So just go. Do me a favor. So I go. I sit through the test screening. As soon as they, as soon as it's over, they start to form a focus group. And, you know, this happy sort of chiropractor type guy Gets to the front of the theater. Hey, everybody! What do you think? Let's all come close and talk about this film. And it's like I just headed out at that point and got in the elevator to go down. And two other couples got in the elevator before the door closed. We're going down to the parking garage. <laughs> They're talking about the movie, and they they didn't know each other. They start out talking to each other, and they overheard each other and just saying. That was the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Can you imagine anything more boring? So, so I, I assume the, the whole audience felt exactly the same way. I, I went home, I just about fashioning a noose, you know? And then my producer called. She sort of knew, like, she better call me and see how I was doing after that. Because it didn't go well. But actually, in hindsight, it went great because United Artists, who was the studio just thought, well, there's nothing we can do with, you know, reshoots or tweaking this or changing this or that. It's just sort of hopeless. Let's just put it out there and see what happens. And the, the weird thing is it actually started doing really well. They released it in, in uh, June or July that year. and then And then there was like the attack on the World Trade Center. And that was pretty much the end of Ghost World as well.
2: I, I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, "Oh, okay, I see what's going to happen. He'll wind up with this girl. These two will be happy together, <laughs> and everything." And, and it's, it's a totally down ending.
3: Oh, and, it was much more down when I Oh he, he had I another one in mind. I, I originally had Seymour hanging himself in his mother's basement. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Dan who wrote the script with me, it's based on his comic. Dan Klaus. He, he that, very, very t- took a lot of time to wisely talk me out of that.
2: Yeah. He that, just said, you, you know, what, you might want to
3: lighten up a little.
2: That that's what I was wondering. Like, would the studio saying, Hey, let's let's have it. Everything worked out at the end.
3: They wanted a double wedding. They did. And they wanted... They did a, exactly that, yeah, They want exactly that, yeah. Yeah.
0: There was another ending, what? They wanted Dora Birch's character to board a bus that said art school? Right, on, on right. It I said, but she's ma- not going to art school. <laughs> what, <laughs> what is she getting on
3: that bus for? I don't know. They didn't Ta- want it so... They just wanted everything, um, you know, less poetic, more explained, is what they want.
0: I'm, I'm glad Dan talked to you, Dan Klaus, the the the, the great. Yeah, uh, the he was right and cartoonist in, and writer talked you out of the uh, and Seymour hanging himself. <laughs> Although Gil- Gilbert might have preferred that ending.
2: Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> usually with films, it's like if it's a da- oh what was that the famous famous uh, silent film uh where the last he? laugh. Yes, yes.
3: There, see you. Thank you.
2: It was supposed to be like the. It was the most downbeat film, most sad and depressing film. (laughs) And then at the end, out of nowhere, they say, "And then he bought a lottery ticket and became rich." (laughs) (laughs) And it's like,
0: what the fuck? They didn't even have focus groups then, right? What the hell happened? Right.
3: When did the first
0: focus groups start? You know, that's a good question. I, I, we'll get, I remember we'll to, reading
3: there was a focus group for um that film, The Champ, I think it was, that Wallace Beery. Oh, the filmed. Wallace Beery
0: picture? Yeah, I think there was a focus group. Wow. I think, so they, they started early on. I think when so. I was
2: on Saturday Night Live, they started showing clips of the show to focus groups. Oh my god. That's when you knew it was oh, this show is no is hopeless.
3: <laughs> Jesus. I loved in your book, the description of Jean Domanian because I was involved with her for a little, I mean, not romantically. I, <laughs> she she had called me about doing a Woody Allen documentary at one point. I went out and, and mm-hmm. met with him. But she she uh, you, the way you described her, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I remember it. You said she's the type of person who would watch a Marx Brothers film and say, well, this Margaret Dumont is pretty good, but what does she need all these strange gentlemen? Gentlemen running around
0: (laughs) behind her her. That sort of said it all, Gilbert. Gilbert, Terry really enjoyed your story that you've told many times on the podcast about how you learned you were booted off SNL when you you found the fan letter. Yeah,
2: I I, uh, they had already fired Gene Domanian and they brought in Dick Ebersole and he said, you know, take a week off everybody. And then when we come in next week, uh, I'll tell you each one how we're going to do things a little different. And so I was waiting outside his office, and there used to be a table where they dumped the fan letters. And all of a sudden, I see a letter there addressed to me from some girl in, like, you know, Ohio or wherever. And I open it up, and it says... Dear Gilbert, I'm so sorry about what happened to you. Oh, my That's God. That's how I found out I was fired. <laughs> That's great. From this yes, that is in. brutal. Yeah. Jesus. Well, and well, you... and when, so when I went and met with him, I had to, it was like knowing you're going to have a surprise party and <laughs> having to act surprised anyway, even though you know.
3: Did you tell him about the letter?
2: Uh, I think so. Yeah, that was too weird that she knew before I did. The other
3: great thing about Saturday Night live that you wrote about in your book that I remember is is uh, auditioning and Woody Allen showing up. Could you talk about that? Yeah, That's
2: yes, great. Uh, they, uh, G, you know, Gene Dominion invited him in, and there was like uh, she was showing like all the thousands of people who auditioned on the on the screen. And he was like stone-faced through the whole thing. And then when I came on, it's the first time he spoke. And he said, is he a Navajo Indian? (laughs)
0: That never gets old. (laughs) That is the greatest. What is birthday today, by the way? It is, really? Yeah. You decided you you were basically- He's a hard guy to, to get to laugh. Is he? Yeah. You turned down what, what ended up being Barbara Koppel's picture, uh, Wild Man Blues. Yeah, that I got
3: was... a call from his sister, uh, Letty, right after the Crumb film came out. And she said, you know, we, j- me and Woody just watched this Crumb film. In fact, he sat down and watched it a second time. And uh, we all really loved it. And we, me and Gene Domanian are, are thinking of doing this documentary on Woody, following his jazz band through Europe. And we thought you'd make a terrific director. And I'm thinking, is jazz band through Europe? Yeah, I don't know. But okay. Um, I said, but, you know, one of the reasons that Crumb Film was so good is because I I really knew that guy. Well, we were good friends for maybe 15, 20 years, if not best Mm -hmm. friends, before I even started the film. So I sort of knew what to look for. I don't know Woody Allen at all, except from his films. Uh, and she said, well, we could fly out and you could, you know, hang out with them for like a week or so. And I said, OK, that'd be a good start. So they flew they fly me out. I'm going from San Francisco to New York. First thing I always do when I get to New York is I make a beeline for John's Pizza on Bleecker Street. It's my, my favorite food. food, right? So I go in there and... I guess John like forgot to wash his hands that night because I got the worst food poisoning I've ever had. And I go back to where I'm staying and I'm thinking, oh, geez, I got to be well enough to meet Woody tomorrow. He's like supposed to meet him at 3 p.m. at this Manhattan Film Center where his editing room is. And I just couldn't get off the toilet. I was there the next morning. <laughs> I was just going on and on, and I'm, you know, taking every medication. Finally, I think it's okay. So I call a cab and I make a run for over there to his place. And and he's there with Sun Yi, and they let me into the editing room where he's got a little office and and a bathroom. And uh, I remember that I knew somebody not very well years ago who worked for him in some capacity, and they said, whenever you're around Woody, don't order smelly food for lunch. That's the number one rule. Don't order like garlic or onions and don't use his bathroom. And I'm well, that makes sense. You know, he's a germaphobe <laughs> from his films. He's a fastidious guy. So I'm sitting there and we're starting to talk, you know, and, and it hits me and I, I got to use a bathroom. So I say, well, I'm, I'm going to go out in the film center and use the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I go out there and everything's closed because it's Sunday, right? So I... I realized, the, I've got, what am I going to do, run down the streets? I go back in there I say, you know, uh, he said, oh, you, know, you can use the bathroom. It's fine. So they're right outside the bathroom. I go in there. And it was just like a disaster, just like, you know, first there's no fan in there. I'm trying to run some water to cover up the noise. It's like the Red Sea opened up and my bowels have just like released this tidal wave of diarrhea. The paint is peeling off the wall. And, you know, this bathroom is so pristine you could eat off the floor. It looks like a high-end, you know, retail pharmacy or something. Anyway, I'm in there for about half an hour, and I finally am able to go back out. And I couldn't even make eye contact with either one of them. I just said, uh, yeah, I don't feel so good. Can I come back tomorrow and we'll talk? And He, he, he was very nice about it. He never mentioned it again. But <laughs> <laughs> we're what, we're what off a to story. a good
0: start with that. Yeah. What a story. Gilbert, I think of all the sad casting— uh... Uh, the the things you were never cast in the fact that Woody never cast you as a Navajo is heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah,
2: because <laughs> <laughs> there were all those westerns that
3: yeah, Woody was He making. made so
0: many <laughs> so many
2: good westerns. He liked John Malkovich.
3: He told me as an actor, and I knew John a little bit. He produced Ghost World and was in yeah. one of my other films, and I wanted to know why he liked him, and and he said, well, because he doesn't say anything. He doesn't pester you with questions. You just tell him to do something. He does it. He doesn't need like, doesn't even want to make conversation. That's perfect for me.
0: <laughs> Gilbert, you'd funny. be perfect for Woody. <laughs> <laughs> Terry yeah. shares our love of Broadway. Danny Rose, I was telling him, which was an inspiration for this podcast. In what way? Uh, that, that the, one of the original conceits was let's just put a bunch of guys together telling old stories. You know, yeah, it didn't the, quite the, work out that
3: way. Well, Get, the opening scene in that film is so great. And then the ending where they all come over for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's you know, like the, the blind xylophone player and the woman who plays music on the glasses, yeah. you know. This yeah, is yeah. so great. But I don't know. He's been a real mensch to me. I, I've always thought he was a really stand-up guy. I've known him for quite a while since they called me in 95. Interesting. Over what, the years. Had dinner with him a take. few times. And, uh... Oh, I, I got to tell you, because Gilbert would be interested in this. I know I know you like James Mason, yes. right? right? So I go to, I'm meeting, I'm in New York so years later, and I get together with Woody to dinner at some crappy food place that he likes. <laughs> Very expensive on the Upper East Side. And uh, it's his turn to pay, so I'm not too worried about it. So, But we get there, and this other guy soon shows up who joins us. And uh, I'm trying to figure out who the hell this guy is. And it turns out it's his agent, this guy, John Burnham at ICM.
0: Oh, yeah, I know that name. He's a really nice
3: guy, really interesting, funny guy. We're talking. I really hit it off with the guy. And at a certain point, he says uh, that he used to be James Mason's agent. And I said, well, who else did you represent besides Woody right now? He says, nobody. I'd like to sign you. And I'm thinking, like, oh, I have this agent. I really like it, William Morris. But... I got to sign with James Mason's age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did actually Just don't use his bathroom. He's got me as much work in the last five years as he's gotten James Mason in the last That's five years. That's a great line. <laughs> Zero.
0: All, all right, Gilbert, since he brought it up, treat, treat Terry to, uh, to 30 seconds of James Mason. Okay. <laughs> we'll make his day.
2: And from this point on, you will have no recollection of Joe Pendleton or Leo Farnsworth, <laughs> it's your destiny, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was great. That was great. Tell us about since we're talking about Crumb, and I, I, uh, this, this stuck with me. Uh, Robert, you pestered him for three years or so to get him to agree to do it. And, and there was a quote, you said, it's a pain in the ass having someone follow you around with a movie camera, which I think Gilbert can relate to. Oh, yes. oh yeah. A- yeah. After the doc. Yeah.
3: No, I wish I had filmed that Gilbert documentary. I don't know if I would have done as good a job as that guy. That guy did a really good job. But Neil, yeah, 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 really yeah. very interested in Gilbert. I, I think of Gilbert as a great artist in his own right, I don't think, you know, he's working the wrong medium. He's not like hanging bedsheets across the Grand Canyon, like Christo, where it's considered (laughs) high art, you know, instead he's, he's constructing a joke and telling it with his delivery. That's just like so great that, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for it, but most people don't consider it much of an art form, you know, but Frank, it no, looks was... like you're living in your dead mother's bedroom. There. I am.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Just chase the black cat off the yeah.
0: rut that her body has left my... in the mattress there. <laughs> yeah, I got Francis Bavier <laughs> under there. Uh, my, my wife yeah, is a decorator.
2: I, uh, according to to legend, Francis Bavier she had about a hundred cats toward the end. And when they discovered her lifeless body, it was being eaten by the cats.
0: <laughs> you know, do you know Francis Bavier from do you uh, the An- Andy Griffith Show? She was oh, Aunt okay, B on the right, Andy Griffith Show. Right. Yeah, Gilbert wow. claims Gilbert claims <laughs> that she was consumed by cats. Irving cats. <laughs> <laughs> but talk a little bit about Crumb, uh, because we, I got a lot of questions here from, from listeners about it. What do they uh, want to know? Uh, d- well, I'll ask one here, uh, as long as we're... Mark Skoback, how did Terry discover that song, uh, Last Kind Words, that he used in Crumb? Uh, record collector, sort of a,
3: you know, it's a bunch of reissues. I can't afford a copy of it. I think there's two known copies, and one is, like, cracked, and that's, like, $35,000 or something, if, if it's for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, It's a, I just wanted to use a lot of music I loved in the film, and luckily me and Crum share the same taste in music, so I could just use my
0: records. So. Michael Murphy says, the Charles Beatrice dynamic always fascinated me. Were they as avoidant of each other uh, to the level the, observer, the, the viewer observes while watching?
3: Well, I was only in their house twice in my life. I was there to film mm-hmm. that one day, and I was there in 1974 about... Um, 20 years before that. Well, no, 20 years before you that. You met the
0: old man, actually, Yeah,
3: huh? I met the old man. Wow. Yeah, he was a bit scary. But um, Robert and I were looking, actually, for old blues records and jazz records, which we both collected in, in the South. And then we were heading up to New York to meet this record uh, producer of ours who put out our awful band's record, The Cheapsuit Serenaders. and. Uh, so we're heading for New York and around Philadelphia, the car started to have big problems and it was getting dark. And I said, we're going to have to find a place to pull over and deal with this in the morning. And he said, let's just like go to my my parents live near here. I haven't seen him a long time. I'd like to see him anyway. Been a while. I haven't seen my brother, Charles. Let's go over there. And I said, "Yeah, OK. So we go there and his mother makes this big spaghetti and meatball dinner. And I love her. I think she's the greatest. I love Charles. I'm having a mm-hmm. good time. These are my people. And uh didn't smell too good in there, I gotta say, but <laughs> I imagine not I did like them, and I thought they were very funny and uh I enjoyed hanging out with them and then, after dinner, we went upstairs to Charles's room, just like you see in the film, and he pretty much
0: talked exactly the same as he as he did in the film at that point I mean you you, the, you set out to make the documentary about all the crumb brothers, not just Robert,
3: yeah, no, well, I tried to include the sisters, but they weren't. They didn't quite share that same Mm -hmm. cartooning uh, compulsion. They they didn't quite have that same sibling rivalry as the brothers. And neither one of them wanted to be in the film. They both, I I called them both and got nowhere with them. But they might have been good. I don't know. Crump said they would have not been that interesting.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. And you were talking about fascinating family something that we we discussed on this show a few times the connection of comedy and music
3: uh-huh yeah I think there's a there's a quite a connection to that I mean you see a lot of rappers and musicians somehow are able to make the the jump from being musicians to being actors like Lady Gaga looks really good in this new Gucci film is that what it is
0: yeah. Yeah, House yeah. of
3: Gucci. Yeah, I saw a clip of that. a really good actress, and and you know, there's rappers all the time who make that leap. Um, I don't know. I always found that acting, as probably is, uh, doing stand up is you need a certain musical ability. You know, there's a lot involved with pitch and phrasing and dropping the pitch at the end of a line or raising the pitch all these nuances, I mean, I can best describe it as, if you look, one of my favorite character actors is Kathleen Howard, who played W.C. Field's wife in two of his films. You're telling me and it's a gift. And she's so musical. It's just so inherent. She actually had studied as an opera singer, as did Margaret Dumont, believe it or not, Uh, early in her career. This was her second career. This is her third career. Kathleen Howard's second career was she was a uh i think she was the fashion editor for vogue magazine like way back in the 30s 40s i don't know but then must have been before that because then she began her film career with fields and so she played his long-suffering wife but she would you know she would modulate this sort of nagging so it wasn't just a like sort of one note it would be sort of like she'd be almost singing it and it was so funny if you go back and look at the way she delivers her lines, she always has this, you know, incredible choice that she makes mm-hmm. in how I have she to does it's it, a gift and, again. and it's different all the time. It's always funny.
2: And the Mox Brothers were old musicians. That's right. They were yes, yeah. Yes. yeah we've ones talked indeed
3: about this too. What's that? Good ones indeed too. Yeah, we've but talked about this But it's got to be that way with stand up. I mean, you're the way you sell a joke. I mean, who writes like if you? I, I recently saw the roast of. Uh, Roseanne, right? Now, did you write all your own material for that?
2: Uh, On and off. Sometimes uh, I write. Sometimes they've always said, you know, there's stuff I come up with. And they always say uh, when they one of the guys that wrote the roast said whenever there were jokes that the comic turned down because they thought they were just too bad taste and they didn't want to say it, that I always said, oh, I'll do that one.
3: <laughs> did you get to pick before you did them?
2: Yeah, yeah. I would I would just pick the ones that I thought were the most tasteless. <laughs>
3: yeah, well, it's... it's. Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody else pulling that off, what you did, just in that roast, let alone, you know, your whole career. But I think that's indicative of the whole thing, that you just have a way, I you know, I'm sure you didn't develop a delivery overnight. I'm sure it was like a long process to get to that, but.
0: And yet he's one of the least musical people I've ever met. Really? <laughs> you don't have, you don't play an instrument? That was my next question. No, never. Plays the Jews'
3: harp. Oh, wow. And, well, and maybe you, know, you are at, and you don't know. But at the Roseanne
2: roast, uh, yeah. this is my favorite part. After I got through, I actually got a standing ovation.
3: That was great. That was Very great. nice. Very nice. But, I mean, could anybody else have told those jokes as well? Nobody. I mean, do you know any good comics who have who don't have like a very strong delivery who just say things like in a flat monotone?
0: Well, unless that's their gimmick, like Stephen Wright. Right, right. The for right. the flat. Well, I, well, I shouldn't have said is... flat monotone. But they
3: don't have anything special about their delivery. Who are really it, funny. Interesting it, it's question.
2: It's kind of like um, a a movie we've discussed on this show a few times is Button Lou. Where uh, Harvey it's, Corman and Buddy Hackett as Abbott and Costello.
0: It's a terrible TV <laughs> biopic, Terry. Okay.
2: And, and Must- it's like they don't have that, you know, like particularly who's on first. That has a very musical sound to it because you get caught up in the rhythm of it. Yes. And they didn't have that rhythm in it.
0: Well, worse than that, it sounded like they'd never heard the routine before, yes. especially especially Hackett. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 a lot of comedians, Mel Brooks is a, is a musical person. I mean, the Smothers Brothers, Victor Borga, obviously. There's I could tell Jack, from watching Jack a film
3: usually within the first 10 seconds if the film's going to be any good or not. And it's by the music. How I mean at least I don't know if it I shouldn't say that. I should say if I'm gonna like it or not. It's by the music. All those all the good film directors were great with music. Everybody. You know, mm-hmm. Kubrick of course was mm-hmm. the master, but every single one. There's there's never gonna be a, a a great film made with terrible music. Those Do you start listening
0: to music to get into the mindset before you direct, to get a, to get a feel for the no, film, the approach? but I
3: always have it in mind. Cause it's, you know, obviously mm-hmm. my first film that's, that's sort of where it started was with finding Louis this Louis. old record of this guy and it just mm-hmm. knocked me out and that led to a film. But in general, if I can find the type of music that's going to fit this film to complement it, then the rest sort of falls into place rather easily. And if I don't find it, like in Art School Confidential, I have a hell of a time directing the film. I didn't have any music for that film. And I finally went to Dan and I said, Dan, this opening sequence, I can't find any music where they're arriving at college to put in there." If I put in like some sort of upbeat music, like you know, you'd hear in like in a in a good Harold Ramis comedy or Fairly Brothers film, it just mm-hmm. doesn't seem like me. It doesn't seem like my film. It works with the motion of it, just I, I can't live with that. And if he I, had something he had saved with this weird marching band that sort of worked for me, but I couldn't. It was very difficult. Mm-hmm.
2: I heard that Mel Brooks will audition actors wanting to hear them sing first. Uh oh, huh,
3: interesting. That's a good idea.
0: And when, when he auditioned uh, Cloris Leachman for Young Frankenstein, she also insisted on being nude. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell the story about uh, uh, the Film Forum and Crumb, because that's interesting. Uh, well, Crum was only playing
3: in one theater in New York when it opened, which was the Film Forum. And it was run by this woman, Karen Cooper. And I had a big argument with her when it first opened up. I said, you're not using." I have like these quotes saying, this is the best film of the year and this and why don't you use these good quotes? And she said, no, she was very smart. She said, no, no, people want to feel like they've discovered the film on their own. And she said, look, the best advertisement for, and then my, the other thing I started nagging her about was I said, you've got this line around the block and you're only keeping it in one of the three theaters. Why don't you put it on two screens? She said, because that line around the block is the best advertisement for your film. And she was right, and it ran there for nine months. Wow. And anyway, I used to check in with her every week, of course, to see what the box office was. And she'd always say, Oh, sold out, sold out, every show sold out. And she said, But you know, who's bought a ticket to your film five times in the last month? Is Jean Moreau. And I thought she was talking about the Spanish. Sculptor Juan Miro <laughs> instead of the French actress, right? And who, I said, Gee, "Who was probably I he dead?" Was dead. <laughs> yeah. She said, "No, no, was Jean Marat. I said, "Oh yeah, jeez, one of my favorite actresses. What's she doing going to that film? I think she was a director at one point." Did I you know ever try to get
0: in touch with her and ask her why? Or I wrote her a script. I was
3: oh. I was in the middle of writing this thing for Johnny Depp that was based on a. I should actually get close to this microphone. I the whole first half of the show is useless now. I, I got a job. Uh, my agent represented Johnny Depp and said, Johnny has this French novel he wants you to adapt into a film and direct. And I said, OK, sounds good. She sends it to me. And I communicate with Johnny Depp, I think it was through email. And he's, he said, Look, could you come down and meet with me about it? And so I figured, okay, I better read this damn thing. And I didn't get anything out of the book at all. It was just like a, this old woman in like a rest home. And uh, how can I make this funny, you know? You know, it had its touching scenes, but I, I was just going to mangle it. So I was, my intention was to go down there and just tell him, you know, sorry, thanks for thinking of me, but... And then my agent told me how much money it would be to, to to do it, and I said, "Oh, it's the greatest, and I love it, i man." <laughs> and uh, and I I said, "But you know, I might need somebody to write this with because I knew I, I I just couldn't do it alone." And he actually suggested Jerry Stahl, the guy who did. Oh, permanent the permanent midnight, midnight. yeah. 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 And we sort of got along together. We wrote the whole thing via email and phone. I think we got together once in the same room, but that was better for both of us. And so we're writing the thing, and it's all in a retirement home. It's about a guy who decides to drop out of life and just check himself into a retirement home where it's just quieter. I don't know what our rationale was. It's a funny premise. Some cockamamie premise like that where he's had it with everything, and he's, he's going to escape the world. And... uh And he gets involved with this older woman in the home. And I thought, oh, Sean Moreau could be this woman. She's this sort of mysterious, uh, you know, French woman who lives there. And so we wrote this whole thing. And then uh, I had the idea to cast... um, Tony Sirico as one of the residents. Where, is that Paulie Walnuts? Of, Pauly Walnuts <laughs> from, from The Sopranos. And some, some guy, before I had that idea, I was actually on some radio show, and the guy was saying, so, you know, you direct films. Who are some of the movie stars you'd love to work with? I said, I, I don't really like working with movie stars. <laughs> They're a pain in the ass. I like character actors. And he said, well, who are some of the character actors and it? sort of threw me. I was like unprepared to name a list because most of mine are like, you know, from minor roles in W.C. Fields films. Mm-hmm. We so, know you, love, we thought, know you well, love
0: Percy Helton. Percy Helton. But I said,
3: I yeah. figured I got to be more contemporary than this. So I had just watched The Sopranos episode. So I knew all those guys. So I said, oh, yeah, Tony Sirico and Frank Vincent and a list of people like that. And so two days later, I get a phone call. In the middle of the afternoon I pick it up. He says, Yeah, Terry, it's Frank. <laughs> and I my mind's racing, Frank, who the hell is Frank? And <laughs> he says, So uh what do we got going? When do I start? What do I get paid? <laughs> I'm like, who is who is this? Oh, it's Frank <laughs> Vincent. He heard about that I mentioned about the radio show. <laughs> and he wanted to know when we start. I said, Well, Frank, you know, I actually you know, I, I just I don't have anything Right now for you, but I always have you in mind. And, and I actually went back with you and we wrote this part for him wow. in the thing, but the thing never got financed.
2: Now, now during the show, I've been catching glimpses of this
0: review. Are we waiting for the review to <laughs> Knock Ghost yourself World. out. Oh, this is the Ghost World review. Yes. Go ahead, Gil.
2: This is uh, VanguardNewsNetwork.com Ghost World. I know it's been out for a while, but if you're ever pursuing the video store looking for a movie to rent, don't make it Ghost World. This movie, directed by Jew <laughs> Terry's <Swipe. laughs> wife. <laughs> is the quintessential example of anti-white propaganda. <laughs> in fact
1: <laughs>
2: in fact when kikes wike off <laughs> it's straight. It's great before a justice of the New World Order. It is this film that prosecutors will use to sentence him to death by, by a crack, crack, craze. The, the story. The story is about two bitter, sadistic girls who are graduating from high school. They are, of course, disgusted by America's vapid, consumer-driven society, you know, where people actually have to work to buy things that they need to survive. One of the girls... Uh, Rebecca, played by Scarlett Johansson, is a pretty white girl, although a piss-poor actress who slowly becomes something really awful, a shallow consumer. Uh, She gets a job, rents an apartment, and is even seen shopping at Crate and Barrel. Meanwhile, Anid, played by Thora Birch, a sassy misunderstood nonconformist who just wants to create art and figure out what's wrong with the world. And, of course, we're reminded several times throughout the movie, Enid's a Jew. In <laughs> <laughs> Steph Seymour, played by Steve Buscemi, is a pathetic 40-ish loner that collects 78 records at first perceived as a dork. He eventually achieves godlike status with a nid, mainly because Seymour hates everyone, also a pseudo-nonconformist, and only listens to n- ragtime and and blues artist. Eventually, 40-ish Seymour and 18-ish Anid wind up in the sack. This is a creepy scene that can only come from the depraved Jewish mind. And the scene that I suspect Led to countless hours of, led to countless hours of fierce masturbation for Swigoff and his ilk. The movie ends in a confused, artsy statement about life's journeys and breaking away, attempted in true Jewish fashion, because Swigoff like his fellow hack Spielberg (laughs) and other Israeli directors (laughs) (laughs) desperately wants to communicate on an intellectual level, but can't. Wow. (laughs) That Uh, is the greatest (laughs) review I've ever (laughs) read. (laughs) I thought
3: the same thing, but... You know, ah. it's the it's the only review I'll ever be compared to Spielberg <laughs> about. So you know, <laughs> where, take did, what that you con- where did
0: that appear, Terry?
3: It appeared in something called Vanguard News Network. Vanguard- somebody somebody yes, sent was, it to
0: me. I was gonna ask if it was the Daily Stormer. It's my dream <laughs> to hear Gilbert read that oh you. God.
3: Gilbert, you know, I know that you read like what was it like that uh what's the romance film? Ninety oh, Shades yeah. of Grey. Fifty
0: Shades of Grey.
3: <laughs> the yeah. perfect film for you to read is Eyes Wide Shut. Come
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's use this segue to get into Bad Santa. <laughs> and and working with Billy Bob. Oh, God. That, and, <laughs> just let me, let me, You're let me prep. Killing me. Uh, let me preface that by saying, because casting is, is a favorite part of filmmaking for you. Yeah, well, we should talk about casting the
3: role that eventually went to Billy Bob. It's sort of an interesting yeah. How, story. What,
0: what happened? I mean, Miramax came to you and gave you five options? Uh, well, Miramax, you know, I got approached
3: first by, uh, uh, my agent sent me this script. And she said, here's the script. You're going to love it. Don't get your hopes up. You're never going to get it made. And in fact, I shopped it all over Hollywood and everybody said no. And many studios were offended by it. And I remember arguing with one guy saying, like, it's like the guy's not even, I'm not even, you know, purporting that this is Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a religious figure. You know, it's, he's a mm-hmm. he's a crook. He's dressed up like Santa Claus. So you're offended by that? And what? I don't <laughs> know. I didn't quite get it. But anyway, the... Everybody turned it down. I gave up on it. been sitting on my desk for about six months. I sort of went on other things. I get a call one day from the Weinsteins, and uh, they say, we just uh, saw Ghost World. And I'm thinking, like, uh, gee, we sent you the script to try to get money for it (laughs) a long time ago. You guys didn't seem to like it in script form, but I didn't say anything. And they said, we want to do a Terry Zweigoff film. I said, yeah, OK, sounds good. They said, so what do you got? You got a book. You got an idea. You got a script. I said, I have the script Bad Santa that I like. They said, FedEx it to us right away. FedEx it so We get it 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. I said, OK. And so uh, got off the phone. And I'm thinking like, Jesus, FedEx is like 20 bucks. I just put this in the mail for like three, four bucks send it media mail. There's no rush. And my wife wisely said, no, no, send it FedEx. Get it to him and they actually called me by noon the next day and said, "Hey, we got a deal. Let's let's do this movie. We're all in." You know, which is wow. You know, the good when, news and the bad news, the bad yeah, news. a lot the of good bad news, news is they're making your movie. The bad news is it's the Weinstein's who uh, like to say collaborate with directors like Gilbert. If they collaborated with you, this is how they would this is how they would put it. They would say, "We're going to hire some hack to rewrite every one of your jokes so that they're awkward and clumsy. And then we want you to deliver them in a flat monotone. <laughs> there, we've collaborated, aren't you happy? That's sort of what my experience was like. But no, they, they said, okay, no, we love it. And who, who are you thinking of for the lead, for the Santa? And I said, I don't know, like Bill Murray, maybe I'm off the top of my head. I'd stopped thinking about this film for months, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, what, what about De De Niro. We're going to send you to to meet De Niro. Get on the next Red Eye to meet De Niro. Go in at midnight tonight. I said, okay. So they flew me first class. I'd never been in first class before. First class was completely empty. It was a midnight flight. The only other person in first class was Monica Lewinsky. And she had those (laughs) like 16-inch steel knitting needles. This is right at the height of like you know, the TSA taking away, they took away my toenail clippers, which were about two inches long, you know, before I boarded the plane. And I go I've in the first place.
2: Yeah.
3: yeah. And I say, she's got like 16 inch steel needles. you know. <laughs> <laughs> thought that was weird, but I didn't say anything to her. I probably should have. Uh, would have made a good story on this show, but I get to New York and uh they let me get some sleep and they say, okay, we're going to Bob Weinstein said, I'll pick you up in a a car and we'll drive up to the Dakota uh, where his producer is, uh, Jane Rosenthal. And Jane Rosenthal, I had heard, really loved me and loved my work and was putting in a good word with De Niro. Oh. And uh, I thought, okay, great. And I'm thinking to myself, though, is is Robert De Niro going to be funny in this movie? Gee, I don't know. You know, I've seen him do like a sort of a bad Santa skit on Saturday Night Live and it wasn't too funny, but... Maybe it was the writing, you know, but, you know, it's Robert De Niro, right? Mm-hmm. The greatest living actor. You got to go meet him. So we're driving uptown and Bob's in the car and he's saying, he's mulling over out loud to me. So what should I offer him? 20 million? Should I offer him like 15? What do you think? It's like 15. 20, what do you, I, I, you might as well be talking to a chimpanzee. I don't know what that kind of money <laughs> means, you know? I, I don't, you know, that's not my department, Bob. You offer him what you're going to offer him. But, What what I forgot to say was right before his car picked me up, I got a call from, I think it was Jane Rosenthal. Maybe it was her assistant or something saying, when you come, don't bring any producers up with you. Mr. De Niro does not want any producers here. I said, "Okay." So I'm in the car and we're almost there. And I said, so, Bob, so I got a call and they say, you know, Mr. De Niro doesn't want any producers to come up with me. He said, fuck him. If I'm paying the guy $20 million, I'm going up there. So, okay, oh, boy, this is going to be great, you know. So we go up there, and he's not there yet, and we're making chit-chat with Jane Rosenthal, she's nice enough, but she looks a little put out that Bob is there. But, you know, what am I going to do, order him to stay in the car? I don't have any clout over the guy. Anyway, uh, Robert De Niro comes in, and he looks a little put off by Bob Weinstein being there. And all I could think of to do was to say, uh, you know, after some initial chit chat and pleasantries, I just said, could you guys please excuse us? Let me just, I just need to talk to Mr. De Niro alone. So they both left the room. I think they were both pissed at me at that point, but they both left the room and I just sort of told them like, hey, I just got to ask you this burning question. In The King of Comedy, there's this extra, and he's in the back of the scene where you're talking to Diane Abbott in this restaurant, and he's so distracting. It's all I could think of through the whole scene. Was this like Scorsese's intention? Who was this guy? He's staring straight at the camera the whole time. He's mimicking you when you do this thing with your hands like this. He does it. It's just so weird and distracting. (laughs) He must have thought I was nuts or something. But we finally... Got a, He just said it was a friend of mine. He needed a job. And I think it's Maury. Yeah, I think it's Maury, the, the yeah, wig yeah, guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we finally got around to talking about the script. He said, I haven't seen any of your films. I haven't read the script. I sort of skimmed through it really fast. <clears throat> Seems like a one joke movie. And I said, Well, I don't quite see it that way. Or, or, you know, it's the way you tell the joke. I don't know. I think it could be very funny. And, uh, you know, I, I, he said, well, I got this commitment to do this sequel and then I got to be in the Midwest doing this sequel and you'd have to shoot in New York and we would have all these limitations. And I said, yeah, well, you know, we'll see what works out. <laughs> and then uh, we leave and Bob says, so did you talk him into doing it? And I'm thinking, boy, you got the wrong guy to talk him into doing anything. I, I don't think he was very interested, Bob. <laughs> He said, uh, well, we're gonna go to Nicholson then. So then they went to Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson loved the script, loved <laughs> unreal, me. Unreal. I heard for some reason. And uh I had heard that his friend Bob Raffleson liked me, so I was in good with him. Uh-huh. So he was gonna sign on and but he had just signed on to something's gotta give that Diane Keaton sure. comedy, and he was trying to get out of it to do this. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I whatever. I don't I have zero fucks left to give at this point <laughs> in my career. <laughs> And then uh, so he didn't work out. And then they had they had a list of five guys. The next guy on the list was Sean Penn. And he lived near me. He lived like an hour away. (laughs) Wow. And uh, they said, well, just go go meet him for lunch. It's like an hour's drive. So I drove over to his house. He was very nice to me. And, you know, we had a nice lunch. He showed me some funny outtakes of stuff and we laughed. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, Would he be good? I don't know. I'm not going to ask him to audition. (laughs) I'm not going to ask him or De Niro to do an audition for me. (laughs) So I I told Weinstein that he said, yeah, both those guys, Sean Penny might be too mean. It wouldn't be funny to ask him to audition. Call him. I said, I'm not going to ask him. You call him and ask him to audition. (laughs) So neither one of us. Actually, Bob did. He did call him and ask him to audition because I heard a story. um, Yeah, yeah. Sean called and left a message on my voicemail, imitating Bob Weinstein perfectly, where I thought it was Bob, <laughs> where he, he said, yeah, I want you to audition and you know, and then he did his side of the conversation where said, what, I guess what really happened was Bob called him, asked an audition. He just said, fuck you. I'm not auditioning <laughs> for you, you fat fuck or whatever, it went down, oh, God, but it wasn't. Man. And then we're on to the next guy who was Bill Murray. He never returned my phone calls. I just left messages on his machine. And then we're down to, for some reason, on the bottom of the list was Billy Bob Thornton. And I thought, huh, it's weird that they'll, you know, he's not as big a star, but I guess they did, um, you know, their big Oscar winning film together, Sling Sling Blade, Blade, right? And that must have made some money. So they were interested in him. And so Bob said, well, let me call him. We'll do a a three-way call. We get him on the phone. And he's nice enough. And he's talking. And he says, "Uh, yeah, well, I love the script. I think Terry would be great. Um, I just, I'm not going to, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do, I'm not going to say any profanity and I won't do anything that involves any sexuality. And we're both sort of, sort of speech <laughs> thinking, well, I got a 20 <laughs> minute movie now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, eventually he came around on that and, and called Bob back, I think, and said it was just some thing. He had a bad experience with the press and they had pressed him about some sex scene or something. And he, and I said, okay, okay. And then uh, we met, and he seemed nice enough, you know, as all actors are in the audition. <laughs> they want the job. Because
0: they want the job. Right.
3: And, uh, but, you know, he, I don't know if it, if, if he was a method actor. Or what, I guess I should preface the story with, I had run into the guy who had done the original Sling Blade as a short film. Uh-huh. Called, they called a Sling Blade. His name was George uh, Hinkenlooper. He was at the St. Louis Film Festival when I was there, and I went up to him and said, hey, I really love this short, and how come you never directed the feature? How come Billy Bob Thornton directed the feature? And he didn't want to talk about it. I later learned, and I saw in, in print, and so I don't get it wrong, I actually wrote it down. He said, quote, Billy Bob Thornton was so abusive to me and the people I was working with that I could no longer really stomach talking to him. <laughs> so... Whoa. It's a little bit of concern when when Billy Bob was hired, but I thought, eh, you know, people act differently in different situations sure. with different directors. This will be fine. But he was just an insufferable asshole, just, just an insufferable <laughs> prick. I mean, and, you know, it started out where, you know, he'd be drinking and I think, oh, maybe it's just the booze because, you know, at 7 a.m. in the morning, he'd be there with his paper cup and it would smell like he was drinking like. A combination of bourbon and old spice aftershave—some really nasty-smelling concoction. I don't know what the hell it was to this well, day. Well, it's,
0: it's in character. Yeah, and so okay,
3: yeah. it's just you know, it's, I start work with him. I realize, yeah, he's a lot better when he's not drunk. You know, when he's when he's sober, he's given a much better performance. It's not quite as flattened out. It got to be rather like sort of one-note mean, you know, instead of like the Kathleen Howard variations I was right. talking about—the modulating. Uh, and so you know he I think he did try to be nice the first couple weeks he was pretty nice, I have to say. and then it just like one day he just like went off on me, and it was like from that point on, it was like you know you remember breaking bad, you know, that Mexican meth dealer villain yeah. uh Tuco Salamanca, he was like that, he was that volatile. Where you know that guy would turn around and cut your throat, <laughs> or you'd have another snort of meth and get in a great mood for thirty seconds. It was very unnerving and not any fun. If you if you want to get a very good sense of what it was like, there's a thing on YouTube just called just Google like Billy Bob Meltdown. He he has a meltdown on some TV or radio show. Is and, that the clip uh, you sent us? Yeah, I sent you that clip, what, yeah.
0: Yeah, where he refused to answer a question yeah. from this, yeah, this poor person. Yeah, you know,
3: he's this... just, just sort of squirrely and difficult, and, you know, it just was created such a toxic work environment that I still resent him for to this day, because it could have been fun. Everybody else yeah. was great. Everybody else yeah. in every picture I've ever worked with has been great. It was just and awful. just
2: for the record, I was backstage at The Tonight Show, and uh, Billy Bob Thornton said he was a fan of mine. So... I can now add him to my list of people of, well, he was always nice to me.
0: Yeah. He adds, <laughs> <you> <laughs> to The Jerry
3: Lewis <laughs> list. He's very charming. I be very charming to a lot of people. I got about three weeks into shooting, I got a phone call from a film director. I, I, I probably shouldn't mention his name, but he's a well-known guy. And he called saying, you don't know me, but I'm calling to give you moral support because I just directed him a couple movies ago. And... Let me guess, day 12, right? And I said, yeah, it's around day 12. What, 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 what does that mean? He said, it means you've shot enough film where you can't fire him. So he's going to be an asshole. I said, oh, okay. I said, how did you deal with it? Because it's really giving me a nervous breakdown. He said, I spent a lot of time in my trailer doing deep breathing exercises. And then wow, after Bad Santa came out, <clears throat> I got a call from Harold Ramis. You know who Harold Ramis is? Sure, sure, yeah. of course. Yeah, I know him a little bit, but not much. Um, and he had just seen bad Santa and it was just sort of a congratulatory phone call. Like, Hey, I love the movie. It's so funny. And I said, Oh, thank you. It's really nice of you to call. And, uh, he said, and I'm thinking of using the guy you, who did the music for bad Santa, this guy, David Kate. is he any good? I said, yeah, he's good. And, you know, told him, you know, what I thought his pros and cons were. And, uh, and he said, yeah, I'm really excited about this movie, The Ice Harvest. I got John Cusack. I just hired Billy Bob Thornton. So Billy Bob Thornton's going to be so great. He was so great in your film. And I'm thinking, Jesus, should I warn Harold of this? I think, ah. <laughs> you know, it was a, it was a Pay, bit of a dilemma. Forward. And I, I didn't say anything because I thought, you know, maybe they'll just wow. have a different relationship than we had. And, and about four months go by, I get another call from Harold as He just finished shooting the film. He says, why didn't you fucking warn me? That was the biggest prick I've ever been in, my life. been in my life. Miserable every fucking day. I've never seen anything like it. I've directed really difficult actors. And I just said, I'm really sorry, Harold. I didn't know. I thought it was just me. Whoa. But
2: maybe, maybe it seems like the craziness and drinking actually worked.
3: Yeah, it made well, him so
2: believable. Well, he was, I, as I say, he was better on the
3: days he was sober. There were days I could tell he was sober, and he he was much better as an actor, I
0: thought, my opinion. I don't want but, to pile on, Terry, but I worked with him on The View, and he was nice to me, too.
3: <laughs> <laughs> More power to you.
0: Maybe, maybe he's just
3: but, going through a bad period. I mean, he, he was, also, it was in the he, middle of Angelina Jolie divorcing yeah. him. Maybe that had something to do with it. But he also gives off a scary motherfucker vibe, though. Yeah. Well, there's that, and then the fact that'd be one thing. But I had these, I had this studio that was, you know, just killing me. You know, I I would call them up. I remember in casting their 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 way of of responding to you, if they didn't agree with you, they'd just hang up on you. They wouldn't even discuss it. So I would say like, they'd, I'd say like, they'd call and say, so who are you thinking of, you know, for the, for the Chepesca part, the part that eventually went to John Ritter. And I said, well, I don't know. I thought like maybe Eugene Levy. And I started listing some people. And as soon as I got to the Eugene Levy, I'd hear a click every time. So I stopped bringing him up. I don't know. What, at first I thought, oh, the phone must have been disconnected.
2: <laughs> That's how naive I
3: was. They would,
0: they would just hang up on not you. Not just even...
2: mobsters, or you know, ordering a hit. Now, he, and, uh, John Ritter worked twice with him. He worked in that, and he and he's he in, worked blade. in Swing. Blade and um, I, I forgot that when I hired him. Yeah, and then I realized
3: yeah. on this, said, "Oh, these guys are friends. Good. Yeah. Oh, John was like the sweetest, most generous guy in the world, and just a wonderful actor and and and." And physical comedian, he he developed this shuffle that he does in this one scene when he's walking to the large woman's dressing room that was so funny. And then actually, when he came into audition, he he read and it was okay. It wasn't you know I wasn't laughing, but I could tell it was as good as anybody else. And I like John Ritter, so I was inclined to give him the part anyway. And he and he came up to me, he said. I know I don't have the character yet, but I'm gonna I promise you, when I show up, I will have something that'll be really funny. And I said okay, and he showed up, and he had created the most hilariously prissy character. This guy was so squeamish at anything mm-hmm. off color that he would start to get nauseous and throw up in his mouth a little bit. He'd be <laughs> acting like he sort of had dry mouth. So you know, at the point where Bernie Mac says to him something like. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Santa fucking someone in the ass, and then he would, he would, his face would almost involuntarily wince, and he would look like he had just like vomit in his mouth. And I just, I ruined every take. I, I had to wind up leaving the room and watching, and you know, the video monitor down the hall because I just was laughing oh, that's so. great. That. like
0: Preston Sturgis used to stuff a handkerchief in his mouth to not ruin takes. That's right. That's what and, you had to do. But Amy Yasbeck told me after he mm-hmm. died
3: right, right after we've wrapped the film, he died, um, which was devastating to me. And I only worked with the guy for a week and I cried. I don't cry for my own family dying. You know, I was just, wow, He was such a great guy. And, and she said, she told me the story. Well, the story originates where the first day of his shooting uh, happened with Bernie Mac. They had scenes together in Bernie Mac's office. It's the scene where Bernie Mac is, I had this conceit for Bernie Mac always being grouchy, where I I thought, oh, you know, his backstory is he's constipated, so I'll give him some Metamucil to to drink the first scene, and then the next day he's on to eating oranges. And I'm sure Gilbert, if he's ever seen the film, thinks, yeah, this is his homage to Cesar Romero, the oranges.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you do listen to the podcast. He knows. knows. And uh, so, but
3: in truth it wasn't an homage to to you or him i didn't even know the podcast at the time of course and um but he's doing the scene and bernie is just like speaking gibberish and they they're doing the scene together and it's the first shooting and they hadn't rehearsed and i thought oh well, maybe i should rehearse cuz Bernie doesn't know his lines and he's just saying this weird stuff. And John doesn't even know when to jump in to try to give his line. Finally, I take Bernie aside and say, Bernie, are you okay? What's going on? And he says, Oh, I'm really sorry. I just, I grew up watching him on TV and that guy's like a hero to me. I am just so nervous in his presence. And I said, Oh, he loves you. You know, we all love you, Bernie. You know, just relax. Let's see it go. Let's just break for a second. And he came back and he sort of got it together. And from that point on, he was really good. And uh, he never had that problem again. But anyway, John had a horrible time that first day because he was just like not feeding him in any lines. He didn't even know when to come in. And Amy said that when he came home that first day, he still had his makeup on. She remembers because he just fell on the floor in front of her and she didn't want his makeup on the rug. She remembered him still having that makeup on. But she said, what, what happened? Looks like you've been through the ringer." And he said, <laughs> stick a knife in me. Stick a knife. Said, what like Swigoff was like a monster or something? No, 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 and then I guess he explained it.
2: And and when you when you talked about how uh, Bernie Mac was in awe uh, in, of uh, Ritter,
3: uh huh, Three's I, Company we, is what he grew yeah. up with, I guess.
2: We we had John Amos on the show. Oh, do no John kidding. Amos told us that he once did a movie with Ernest Borgnine. And at times he would just look at him and go, "Oh my God, I'm here with Ernest Borgnine." He was in <laughs> Marty. He was in uh, yeah. all these different movies, and, and yeah, he said that Ernest Borgnine would stop when John Ritter, when John Amos got that look in his face, and he goes, "Ah." He's eating popcorn again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's so great. Well, you answered the question. Jer Moran, one of our fans, I'm a a gigantic admirer of Terry's. Everything he made is gold. But what was the inspiration for Bernie to be constantly eating oranges? There you go. And Bad Santa.
3: (laughs) The actual inspiration for me taking that script to begin with was the, the dialogue was so specific and so funny that that line it was, you know, you might, I think you know these, you worked with these guys, you told me, Frank. Uh, uh, Glenn Ficara, John Regwin, and, and Glenn Ficara. Yeah, Fikara I, re- I wrote worked with script. Glenn and
0: John on uh, Angry Beaver, so let's yeah, give the them a shout was out. great, yeah. Yeah. What was the one you loved, Sweet Jews for Jesus? Sweet Jews for
3: Jesus cracked yeah. me up. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the store detective discovers Santa destroying Santalin and sort of laments in the Southern accent, Sweet Jews for Jesus. Uh, you know, there was a whole, do you remember that scene where they're trying to crack the safe? Yeah. And they're talking about this other guy who they met in prison. He could get into anything. You get into Margaret Thatcher's pussy. Yeah. The safe cracker they're talking (laughs) about. And it was
0: especially
3: funny. And then Tony says, and that's a good thing. It was especially (laughs) funny because of that. Margaret Thatcher was famous for that Margaret Thatcher pussy blouse. Do you remember that? It had this little tie that was called the Pussy Tie years ago. <laughs> Interesting. Look it Google
2: it. I wonder those if Glenn and John sure were, were thinking aware of that. Of that. You know, yeah. I just thought of something, and then Robert De Niro wound up doing that movie Bad Grandpa.
3: That's right. Years ago, yeah. He could Wasn't have been Bad Santa either. first.
0: Yeah. When, when they presented you with those five names, when you told me that on the phone, I thought every one of these guys is a, pro- is a potential problem.
3: Yeah, well, <laughs> that's what you deal with with movie stars usually, but- you know. Well,
0: on the subject of casting, does the Lee Ermy story connect to Bad Santa? Yes, it does. I know the Mickey Rooney one does. Yeah. So,
3: Well, I, the script was originally written. Every part in the script was for a Caucasian. So, like, Lois was originally white, Marcus's wife. I made her in this Filipino mail-order bride because my friend, a 78 collector, had just had the misfortune to order a Filipino mail-order bride. And she was <laughs> making his life hell because she was such a crazed consumer. But... The very funny, Mack Lauren part, Tom. By the way, yes, very funny. She's terrific. And the and the the first person I thought of off the top of my head for the Bernie Mac part was Tommy Lee Jones, and I thought, oh, this guy's a terrific actor. He'll probably <laughs> be just uh, the another guy. He'll be a lot of fun to work with. <laughs> and why not add him to the crew? But you know, for the sake of art, you got to sort of do it. So I said, send a script to Tommy Lee Jones. So his response to the script was. I ain't playing second fiddle to no midget. <laughs> that was it. So he wouldn't do it. And then the, then the the Weinstein said, "Well, who, who's next on your list?" And I said, "What about Charles Napier?" And they said, "Charles Napier? Are you out of your mind?"
0: <laughs> I love And Charles I said, Napier. "Okay,
3: okay." I said, um, "F. Lee Army, Arlie Army. He'd be great." And they said, "Who's he?" I said, "He was in Mississippi Burning." He's the drill sergeant, full metal jack, and he's a really good actor. And he's perfect for the part. He'll be so funny in this part. It is him. And they said, hey, he's not a big enough actor. We're not going to hire him. And uh, I got to meet with him. Oh, He came to meet. I didn't ask him to read. But at the time, they hadn't said an official no. So I did get to meet with him. And he did talk about the Cooper. I don't know, Gilbert, if you've ever seen the scene. Have you ever seen Mississippi Burning? The Alan Gene, Parker, Gene, Gene film. Hackman. Yeah. You've seen Gene that, Hackman. Gilbert. Yes, Will, yeah. Willem Dafoe,
2: uh, Gene, uh, with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: The there's a scene where I guess Arlie Ermy plays the sheriff in in that film. And then also there's a scene in Seven. Have you seen David Fincher's Seven? Oh, it's oh, a good yes. movie. He plays. He's in a scene. Arlie Ermy's in a scene. He's playing like a uh, like a cop, like maybe like a lieutenant or something. Oh, he's in yes. the office yeah. and. I read someplace where he picked up the phone, much like you do in Beverly Hills Cop 1 or 2. I forget which one. Oh, and 2. And he and he ad-libs this line that was just great. He says something like, this isn't even my desk. And he slams the phone down. Because <laughs> he said in the, it, when they were shooting, the phone kept ringing. And he didn't know how else to, you know, he didn't want to do another take. So he thought, I'll just pick it up and say something and hang up, which was sort of genius to do. But, like, when you did, say, Beverly Hills Cop, did they... Just let you add lib, or how did that come about? Uh, yeah,
2: every time Eddie and I did that scene, we did it differently. Well Like, we were ignoring the script, and each time we did it, I like, I wish they had a, a reel of all the different times we did it. And yeah, that, that I just ad lib the bitch part.
0: <laughs> so you hang up the same way he does, right? It must exist somewhere, that footage, Gil.
2: Yeah, it was, I remember... Eddie and I laughing during that whole shoot.
0: It was very funny. Yeah. So what? So you met with Ernie, but what? And and what happened? Well,
3: I you know I loved him. I thought I just told him I think he'll be great. I'm trying to get the studio to hire you. We'll see what shakes out. It was pretty much it. And we had lunch. Okay. And, and I what, happened Kubrick, with, what happened what
0: happened with know? Mickey Rooney?
3: Oh well. So the role. Uh,
0: that, <laughs> that,
3: it's that already a
2: good story.
3: <laughs> the role. That, I mean, that's a good story. Up to that point, almost every role they get offered in a film is like, OK, you're a sight gag. You're a midget. We're going to throw you across the room. Ha ha. Very funny. And this part, the guy was a real person. He had good dialogue. In fact, he was you know, sort of the brains of the operation.
0: Oh, you're talking about the, you're talking
3: about Tony Cox's role. Tony Cox. Well, I'm bleeding yeah. up to Mickey Rooney. I'm just saying everybody wanted that role. And okay. so before Tony Cox had come in, well, actually, the first guy to come in was Peter Dinklage. And I don't know what Peter Dinklage was. He had just done The Station Agent, which I hadn't mm-hmm. seen. He wasn't on Game of Thrones yet. But the casting uh, person, Mary Verneau, who was great, knew of him and said, I think you'll like this guy. And he came in and It was a very weird vibe in the office that day. The women were all very attracted to him. He's a very handsome guy, but he's, you know, he's short. And, uh, but that didn't phase him. They were really like, you could, they were giggling and flirting with him. It was weird. Anyway, he was a nice guy and he read. And he seemed like he was like a, I think he was like a trained Shakespearean stage actor or something. He was really good. And I just Mm -hmm. thought, well, he's really good. Every line is truthful. But I wasn't laughing, you know, and so I thanked him and we continued searching. The Weinsteins wanted the guy from Seinfeld who played. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, his uh, name went out of head He played Mickey. 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 Yeah. yeah. What was his uh, real da- name? Danny Woodburn. Danny Woodburn. Very good. Jesus. Thank God for you, Frank. <laughs> That's a sickness. <laughs> I don't know if this heckle and Jekyll show of you guys would, would work without you <laughs> coming in in that kind of situation. But yeah. Uh, um, what was I saying? Was, that the that, 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 that Miramax
0: wanted uh, Danny
3: Woodburn. Uh, so they wanted him. He came in and read. He was good. I laughed. And then uh, Mickey Rooney comes in. This is all before Tony Cox. Mickey Rooney comes in. I go up to the casting in Mickey Rooney's here. I'm all excited. He's like 90 years old. He's like the, the number <laughs> one movie box office star in the world at one point in his career. Right? He comes in, shakes my hand. He hands me his headshot and his resume. It's like... Three hundred and thirty films on his resume. I'm, I say, oh, Mr. Rooney, please. You don't have to give me this. I know who you are. I'm a big fan. I thought you were so tremendous, and Bill, and Requiem for a Heavyweight. Did you guys see that film, Requiem for a Heavyweight yes. with Jackie oh, Gleason? Yeah, sure. he's, he's really good in that film. And of course, you know, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, a part that Gilbert could play today. <laughs> Gil- <with> Gilbert, his, <laughs> what was that guy's name? The Japanese guy? Oh and, God. Mr. Yama like, Moore, Mr. Yamamori, Mr. Yoniyoshi, or something. Yoniyoshi like that. or something. Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. That was the, about the funniest thing I ever saw, but uh, wouldn't hold up today. I don't think, no. too well with most people. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so he's he's in front of me, and I'm having this popcorn moment. There's Mickey Rooney, you know, and I and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, I can't hire this guy. The Weinstein's are never going to let me hire Mickey Rooney. <laughs> But Wait a he minute! Really, he had to be—he had to be like 80 years old at this yeah, point. Yeah, he was, he was pushing yep. 90, I think. Yeah, oh god, was—he he, was—he was, <laughs> was, was rather frail. But I, you know, I—he had this sort of grotesque over-the-top enthusiasm that had always fascinated me because I'm exactly the opposite. I'm always sort of sullen and depressed. And and you know, he was married to Ava Gardner. All I'm thinking of the whole time he said it was, this guy's lips were on Ava Gardner's pussy. This guy was fucking Ava Gardner. He was fucking Lana Turner. And they're he talks about it in his autobiography. He describes Ava Gardner's genitalia. It's quite something. And uh And and I think even in his book, he admits, like, the only reason that that Ava Gardner married him—he was married eight times—the only reason she married him is because he was so persistent, it was just easier to marry him than to just keep fighting it. And he was that way with me. Like, after he read, he just kept saying, sir, I have the job— do I have the jump? Did I do good? Do you think I have a chance? And he was like literally at one point, like hanging on my pants leg, like saying, this would really be a huge favorite. And I just felt so bad. I'm thinking, I, I gotta figure a way to let the guy down easy, you know. Cause he was he was brilliant in parts in his audition, some of the the way he he chose to read the lines, and other parts were just way out there. He's sort of in and out and too old. And I just told him he was too—he was too tall for the part. He was written as three tall. foot six. <laughs> the, he fact he was, I, the fact that, that he was
0: hundred had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him that. Right. i, I but, heard uh, that
2: Mickey Rooney one time he was working on some show, and what he would do to entertain the other people in the production was he would get on a payphone on the wall, and he would fuck a chorus girl. As he's talking to his wife, and that used to be a popular thing. They'd go, "Hey, Mickey's still in it again. Let's go see." Oh my God! <laughs> if only
3: I'd known. You know, his audition. He ref- whenever he got to a profanity, a swear word, he refused to say it. He would say blank. So he'd say, "These these lips are on your blankety blank blank." And I'd say, "Mickey, you you know you got to say the words in the script." <laughs> He said, Oh, I will when we're filming. He says, There's there's a lady here present in the room. I said, It's the casting director. She's fine. She <laughs> said, No, I'm fine with it. Say, say whatever you want to say, you know. He slips around your wife's blank last night, you mother, blank and blank.
2: <laughs> One time <laughs> they interviewed Nightmare. Sammy Davis Jr. and they said, How do you feel being the greatest entertainer in the world? And Sammy Davis said, No, I'm not. Mickey Rooney is. Huh?
0: Huh? There you go. There you go. By the way, Billy Barty gets a mention in Bad Santa, so props to you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Terry. Props stole, to John stole and from yeah, I
2: lost a part out to Billy Barty once. <laughs> <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor.
3: We should really talk more about the, uh, the Brett Kelly being found to it's an interesting story
0: for, yeah, for wh- wh- to play the Yeah. Where is Brett kid. Kelly now? He's twenty he's twenty-eight years old now. Yeah, well he did Bad Santa too, uh-huh, which was pretty awful. Which you but wanted no part of for obvious no,
3: reasons. No, I had hoped. My lawyer called very excited at one point saying, I think you're entitled to money for the sequel they're doing. I said, Great, how much? And then they checked and said, No, they just it just expired. You're just like a year too late. But the casting search for this kid Let me read you first what leads up to this, because I had to write this down, because it's a quote from John Glenn about um, the origin of the script of Bad Santa that leads to this. Uh So so here's here's a quote from them. They say, as as far as facts go, I asked them, how, how did the film originate? How did they come to write the film, and how did the Coen brothers get involved? Yeah. As far as facts go, Joel and Ethan had a newspaper clipping about a drunk mall Santa from the Midwest, and they took us out to dinner, and their entire pitch was, quote, he's a bad Santa, he drinks beer and stuff, unquote. That was it. So we ruminated for a while, we got together, and we wrote this thing sort of a, a, a few weeks later and pitched this heist idea to them as a sort of homage to Donald Westlake novels, specifically Jimmy the Kid. And the Coens were concerned that we wrote in a real little person because there was not a deep talent pool, and the same thing for the kid. And I thought that was really smart because they anticipated that problem that I did not. That like, yeah, it's really hard to find. Like, where are you going to find a, a good actor, you know, who's like five years old or eight years old who looks like this kid? And they started searching and searching. And they just the Weinstein's wanted the kid from Two and a Half Men, who was this cute mm-hmm. little Disney kid, a- a-
0: Angus Jones. Angus Jones. Yeah.
3: Um, and I wanted a kid that looked like Joe Cobb from The Little Rascals, you know? <laughs> <And I laughs> Joe
0: Cobb. Tell there the you go, casting, Gino. It's a Joe
3: th- Cobb reference. I told the casting director, no, get me Joe Cobb. And I had to show her a picture. Like, she didn't know Joe Cobb. And I said, guy, I want a kid like it's written in the script. So they opened the casting search to Canada. They finally found this kid. He'd only done one commercial. And I said, if this—and they showed me his headshot— and I fell on the ground laughing. I said, if this kid can walk and talk at the same time, he's tired. So they, Weinstein's insist on him auditioning. They flew him down from Canada with his mother. His mother, I think, chose the clothes he wore, which are the clothes you see him in throughout the entire film, that same 2 tight T-shirt and shorts that he showed up to audition in. And I told him, do not lose that those clothes. Put them away now until shooting, and we're going to use those. And... uh and he was great. And uh, yeah, he is. He was. The, I think, but the only. Well, Billy helped a lot with him. To be fair to Billy, and Billy stood up for me. In fact, when the, the Weinstein's didn't want to hire the kid, they thought it was just, nah, we should stick with these cute little Beverly Hills acting class Disney kids. And I said, no, I want a real kid. That was the genius of Hal Roach, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just. Eventually came down to Billy was going to have to read with like three kids, and one of them could be Brett Kelly, and then we'd have two other kids of their choice. And so he was very helpful to Brett and really helped him through and was, It was on was my Di- side to push for that actor to get the job. The kid's that, good. But was I, Disney- it, it got to the point where I had to threaten to quit before they eventually did hire him. I had to threaten to quit to, to get Tony C- Cox hired as well. Gilbert's a Tony Cox fan. Oh, Tony's yeah. the greatest. I talk and- to him every month. We, we call each oh, other. Oh, do that. you? Yeah,
2: it's kept in touch. And that kid, it's like, it would have been ruined if it was like, you know, a cute Hollywood uh, child actor.
3: Absolutely. Many came in and auditioned for it, and it was just like, eh, the script is so inspired. Let's not ruin it, guys.
2: And and they they just had um, a Bad Santa 2 on a couple of days ago, oddly enough. Right, and I think I sat through like ten minutes of it. Yeah, not
0: too good. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, be, let, you know, let, let's make clear too, Terry, that you're not a fan of the of the original theatrical cut, so that our listeners should watch the director's cut. Well, of Bad you know, th-
3: at this point, the theatrical cut and the director's cut are that that much different. They're about ninety percent the same, but it's like somebody puts like. Ten percent urine in your drink, and says, there enjoy your lemonade. You know, but the way that came about was when the film came out, the test scores were on the low side, to put it mildly, because a lot of people just get offended. You know, Santa's drinking; he's smoking a cigarette. First scene, they're out of the movie. You know, because they were tested in places like Texas to little blue-haired old ladies, and mm-hmm, sure they. They'd be offended for some sort of weird religious reasons like uh, the Easter bunny is a religious object. I don't know. Well, basically, the film didn't test so great and they want to get the numbers up. And so they basically would just say, look, every comment the audience makes a test card, say, which were in agreement in one area, which was basically we're uncomfortable with Santa being so mean to the little kid. Can he be nicer to him and earlier in the film than at the end? And I said it doesn't make sense. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't. Not mean to him. He just doesn't care about him until he gives him that wooden pickle. And then you know, that's sort of from that point on. He starts to have feelings for the kid. And they said, all right, well, we're going to write these. We need to add like a scene for every card that the audience, every comment the audience has. We're going to write a scene and shoot it and drop it in and see how it tests. And I think, right. oh, Jeez. Jesus, a Christ. nightmare, what a nightmare. So I said, well, you know, I'm not writing it. It doesn't make any sense to me to have Santa. Teaching him karate one day, you know, like he wouldn't care about the kid. This just doesn't make any sense at all. Or, or checking on him at night to see if he's sleeping okay and just wouldn't care. So, I, I mean, I could write him, but I have a final cut of the film and I'm going to save you money. They're going to wind up on the editing room floor. So don't spend $10 million adding all these scenes that I'm not going to put in the film. I have final cut of the film. Well, I was to find out that you can't enforce your final cut unless you hire these outside litigators at thirty five thousand dollars a day. So they just fired my editor, shot these scenes based on Bob and Harvey's ideas, hired some hack writer to write them. The Cone brothers wouldn't write them. John and Glenn wouldn't write the scene to their thing. credit and to their credit. And uh, they were awful for the most part. They they. They got me to shoot two of them that I didn't think harmed the film, and they were in response to the audience saying, we want more of Bernie Mac in the film. And so I wrote a couple uh, revisions of those scenes to make them a little bit better and shot those. But a lot of the scenes just, they tested and they took out on their own. It just didn't work. I I thought the thing that, that deflated me the most was really when they put in, they took out that. Music I had picked for the film, the Chopin at the beginning, this very beautiful, melancholy music, because they said, the audience doesn't even know this is a comedy. I said, well, they'll figure it out. Give them a minute, you know. This music's all wrong. And they put in Elvin and the Chipmunks doing Jingle Bell Rock instead. Oh, at that point, I just yeah. said, I, I, I quit. I'm going home. And I did. I went home, packed up. And they tested their version of the film. It tested so badly, like this weird Frankenstein monster, they enticed me back. And said, come back to the editing room, we'll hire your editor and you get into shape." And I spent the next year like trying to save face with them of getting rid of their scenes and trying to get it back to where it was, which was basically the original script. But you know, like I say, there's about ten percent left Mm -hmm. of residue in their version that still makes me sort of cringe. But But you were vindicated. Really sort of
0: vindicated. Ultimately. Yeah. Gilbert Ultimately. got a kick out of this. One of your uh, one of the projects you were approached to do was a sequel to The Last Detail, a yeah. movie that we talk about on this yeah, show. That's right. Through,
3: uh, I think Randy Quaid's Crazy Wife. Really? He sent in a he sent in an audition <laughs> on tape to me somehow at my home address, Randy Quaid, <laughs> where he the auditioned for better. Bad Santa completely naked. And I think it's his wife Evie Quaid filming it. And I'm looking, and he's drunk. I mean, really drunk. And it's, oh, it's just—I still have it somewhere. I still have the Mickey Rooney
0: audition song. Oh my God, we got to get our hands on that. Right. Let's let's thank our mutual pal Drew Friedman for yes. uh, for for introducing us uh, to Terry. And I, I've been a fan uh, for a long time of both Crumb and uh, and, and Ghost World and Bad Santa. Uh,
3: Drew's, but, a, uh, Drew's a, a great genius too. A it's twisted one of those genius. Few Comic book guys that I used to follow. What's what's your favorite Drew strip there, Gilbert?
2: God, I don't know. I remember I when I met him, we were both like uh, used to do stuff for a National Lampoon.
3: Uh huh.
2: And I remember calling him Jew dots. <laughs> and he still does. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't he,
0: do the pointillism anymore. He was it shaded exactly.
2: by doing like. Millions of dots. That's right. Yeah, yeah. no, his his is weird. The yeah. strangest. Uh,
0: well, I I regaled Terry with the stories of of you showing up at his in his doorway at, yes. at one at one o'clock in the morning, demanding to see Robot Monster. <laughs> yes. Or or the the Beast from Yucca Flats. And you why? Because you had no TV at home
3: of your own or what? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I didn't have. I don't think I had a VCR, and we'd I we'd sit uh, together had watching a the worst like horror movies that both of us you know <laughs> indestructible man and all of those right. that were always fun
0: yeah drew, drew would fall asleep he'd be on deadline he'd fall asleep over his drawing board wake up at four o'clock in the morning and gilbert would still on the couch <laughs> <laughs> in,
1: his,
0: in his parka my favorite my favorite drew uh, i have to mention i know you love old bud abbott i love william Bendix sightings In the first book and the game show hosts walk among us and guilty pleasures of literary greats, which he did with Kathy, his wife. Uh, uh, The stories, you know, when Kathy showed up in in Drew's life, (laughs) she said, I think she read the riot act. I think she said, Gilbert's (laughs) got to go. She'll hear this and I hope I'm not misspeaking. Uh, Let's plug these wonderful uh, DVDs that you were kind enough to send me, Terry. Before
2: uh, you do that, I just want to know, during the making of Ghost World, did Scarlett Johansson ever say anything about wanting to fuck me? (laughs) (laughs) Or or her robot.
3: (laughs) I have to say, in all honesty, no, but I will say that after I completely made her career and started her on her rocket path to stardom. Does she ever pick up a phone or drop by the house and let me throw, like, orange wedges at her
0: ass, for instance? No. <laughs> All I've done for that little brat. Well, at least she could do. Didn't you You tell me you reached out to her when you, heard, when you saw the Scarlett Johansson robot? I did. I sent her a, a link to it. She, yeah. I never heard
2: back from a <laughs> uh, Sex robot. And could the inventor please send me that robot? Yes. <laughs>
0: she's she's great in the film. And thanks for mentioning Don Knotts in Ghost World too. Yeah, oh, he's the greatest. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many wonderful. You know, we didn't even get into working with Balaban and Steve and uh dead. T- another time we have you back. See if Quickly, I'm still alive uh, in another year. I'm gonna read you this too. Uh, Gregory Ward uh, says uh I don't have a question for Terry but I have to say that Crumb is in my top five films of all time. The Criterion Blu-ray is a must-have. I watch it several times a year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So there you go. You've got a, a, a lot of fans. These, by the way, these are great, these Criterion uh, editions of Louis Bluie, which is talk about a valentine and a labor of love like this show. Uh, we'll tell the story the next time you're back. And the Crumb movie.
3: Can I ask Gilbert really quick about his own artwork? On the inside cover of the of your book, Rubber Balls oh, and Liquor? Yes. It looks a little bit like uh, one of the Crumb brothers there. <laughs> 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 what was your like were you a fan of like Basil Wolverton? Or... It's a little Wolverton. A little, yeah, bit, little bit Rory uh, Hayes.
2: Yeah. I'm sure I was influenced by a lot of those guys.
3: You read that stuff, those underground comics too? Yeah. And, uh, did you know who Crum was?
2: No, I never met Crum.
3: Did you ever read his Zap comics or anything in the sixties? Oh, oh,
2: absolutely, <clears throat> oh. yeah, yeah. I used to draw a lot. I it was, oh, very perverted stuff. Oh,
0: well, did and you see is the, that the drawing? Available of the-
2: anywhere to see? <laughs> Uh, no, I never did any exhibit. In the book, there is some of
0: my In a little bit, yeah. Did you catch bit. the thre- the three-breasted woman oh, uh, yes, Terry Mo, and it says Moe, Larry, Larry, and Curly? Curly.
3: Sure. <laughs> of course, yeah.
0: How could you miss that? Right? That says it all, Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> that that really sums you up.
2: Yeah. Perverted sexual uh things and the three
0: stooges that's, uh, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's in <me>. a nutshell <laughs> we got a joe cobb story too that we'll tell you off mic, terry but All i right. want to i want our uh, i want no our time for to lawrence g- tourney tell it quick uh can't
3: be told quick it'll ruin it next okay. time
0: next time save something yeah. get, uh, get louis bluey guys it's a real uh, valentine uh, to terry's favorite m- uh, music it's a that guy turned out to be a wonderful character by the way, Good. Howard Armstrong and the Crumb uh, documentary, uh, which is wonderful. And if you haven't seen Ghost World, uh, pl- what are you waiting for? 20 years old. Happy anniversary to Ghost World. Thank you. Gilbert, what else do you have for this man? Oh, God. Terry's off mic, Terry's going to give you, uh, he's going to make his offer. He's got a part for you. Right. I don't have financing yet, Gilbert. That's, <laughs> the, that's the downside. <laughs> There's no financing. Thank have you, hopes Drew. I your
3: podcast is going to catch on, and you guys are going to be billionaires and finance it yourself.
0: Is that going to happen? I- Probably not. <laughs> I, Thank you, I would Thank you like, for the nice but, words, though.
2: I would like for this Ghost World review to go viral. <laughs> it might now. <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever read. <laughs> I knew you'd like it.
3: Somehow when I saw that, it had Gilbert's name all over it.
2: Uh, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we have been talking to a man who jerked off to the Wicked Witch of the West in <laughs> Wizard of Oz, Terry Zweigoff.
0: <laughs> we'll leave the audience wondering about that one. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, me- you guys. Me- Merry Christmas fun. to the man who made mad Santa, Bad Santa. Thank you, guys. It was a we'll blast. Do we'll do it again.
1: Dashing through the snow in the one horse open sleigh. And over the hills we went. Yeah, hey, hey, we were laughing all the way. Oh, oh. Bells on Bob Hill ring. They were making spirits bright. What fun it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Hey! Jingle bells, jingle bells, hey, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. <laughs> jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Now, bundle right up in there. Hop Get up there. Ha, ha, Are you warm? Are you warm, dear? That's right. Look at that countryside over there, huh? Look at the beautiful snow. Fine. looks like a... Beautiful painting, don't it, over there, huh? Listen, um, uh, you bring along a little of the, uh, a little of that uh, Christmas, uh, 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 oh, the uh, eggnogs, dear, uh, oh, yes, I will, I'll have a little, a little bit there. Right, keep on going there, ha, 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 oh, that's right. Let me look at what I'm doing, you just look at the road, see? Now, just, uh, here we go. We were dashing through the snow, you see, in this one horse open sleigh. <laughs> And over the hills we went. but well, you see, the horse just didn't know the way, that's all. And you see, uh, the bells on the bobtail, they were all ringing. And I was trying to get you to singing, and she was giving me the eggnog. Well, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing. After a while, uh, she was warm. She put the blanket up over me, and I just said, "Well, honey, where are we?" I said, "Where are we?" The horse didn't answer me. He just went right on. He went right on. He was just and the horse started singing jingle bells. Gosh, it was wild, wild. And then the horse went, "Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way." Oh, what fun it is to ride in one horse open sleigh. I said, what is that, the horse singing? Said, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle, jingle all the way. Uh-huh. I said, here, fella, let me pull the sleigh. You get in the in the sled. <laughs>